Mary Forty here. I've been reading this uh, fascinating book by Roddy Goldman, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. And uh, he talks a great deal about how people on the left just love to educate. They just want to help us get our lives more orderly, all right? This doesn't just express itself in hostility to the free market, but the left wants to edu- extend their education to every sphere of life, all right? So... Laura Ingram says, parents would be disturbed to know that it is common practice among pediatricians these days to tell the mums and dads to leave the room so the professional can have private chats with children, chats that involve controversial topics like abortion, premarital sex, masturbation, and birth control. Leave it. Experts, guys. Mum and dad need to leave the room so that these things can be left in the hands of the experts. All right, let's go to Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, the most important thing to keep in mind in a period of intense change is that things are, in fact, changing. Things weren't always this way. So memory, history, is your best defense against manipulation. When you remember the way things were, you can fight to preserve them. When you no longer remember it was always this way, then you're at their mercy. So with that in mind, it's worth remembering that 100 years ago, Memphis was one of the richest, best organized cities in the country. It had a booming economy. It had beautiful municipal parks, a lot of them, more than 100. It had one of the most modern sanitation systems in the world, something we take for granted now. But when yellow fever was real, no one took it for granted. Memphis was such a big deal that it, in fact, was the informal capital of an entire American region, the Mississippi Delta. But not anymore. In fact, by last year... If you went to Memphis, it was hard to believe that any of that had ever been true at any point, because by that point and now, Memphis had become a husk and a highly threatening one. In 2021, according to federal statistics, Memphis, Tennessee was the most dangerous city in the United States. Last year, it recorded a total of 342 murders. Now, how many is that? Well, by comparison, San Antonio, Texas, which has more than twice the population, recorded fewer than half as many murders. So by any measure at all, Memphis was absolutely falling apart. But Liza Fletcher decided to make a life there anyway. After graduating from college, Fletcher moved back to Memphis. Both sides of her family had lived there for more than 100 years. She married a man she'd met in church. He grew up there too, and they had two little boys. She began teaching pre-kindergarten at a local girls' school. Here's a video that she made for her students at the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. It's only 15 seconds long, but you can tell immediately what sort of person Liza Fletcher was. Hey, girls, it's Miss Fletcher. I miss all of you so much. I'm just at home with my kids, missing you guys, wishing we were back at St. Mary's. But I wanted to touch base and say, hey. Hey, girls, it's Mrs. Fletcher. I miss you so much. So every year on their wedding anniversary, Liza Fletcher's husband wrote her a love note on Instagram. Reading them now will make you cry. But you can see why he felt that way. Her warmth and her decency shined through. Meanwhile in Memphis, seven miles across the city, lived a man called Cleotha Abstin. 
Like Liza Fletcher, Abstin also grew up in the city of Memphis, but he could not have been a more different sort of person. Judging from his long public record, Clotha Abstin devoted his life to preying on people weaker than he was. Clotha Abstin was a predator. He was an evil man. At a young age, Abstin was arrested for, among many, many other things, stealing, aggravated assault, weapons charges, carjacking, and rape. In 2000, he was convicted of kidnapping a local attorney at gunpoint downtown and forcing him into the trunk of his own car. Crimes like that are now common in Memphis. Last year, the city reported more than 100 kidnappings. But like most lifelong criminals, Cleotha Abstin was never fully punished for what he did. He was released years before the end of his prison sentence. Nor was he in any way since reformed by his experience behind bars. Abstin was well known in his apartment complex as of last week for his sexual aggression and his perversity. He terrified his neighbors. But no one from any part of the justice system seems to have intervened. Early last Friday morning, Liza Fletcher and Clotha Abstin met for the first and last time. As her husband and two young children slept at home, Liza Fletcher went for an early morning run through her neighborhood. Cleotha Abstin followed her, stalking her every move from a black SUV. According to the indictment, as Fletcher jogged by, Abstin leapt out, beat her bloody, smashed her cell phone, then dragged her into his vehicle. Within an hour, Liza Fletcher was dead. She'd been sexually assaulted and murdered. Police arrested Abstin soon after based on surveillance video, but he refused to say what had happened to Liza Fletcher. So her family waited in agony, but he didn't care. He never spoke. Yesterday, authorities finally found Liza Fletcher's body. She'd been thrown like garbage behind an abandoned building in a seedy part of town. The whole story could not be more shocking or more horrible. But here's what may be the scariest part. Some people didn't seem particularly shocked or horrified by it. In the hours after Liza Fletcher's disappearance, Biden voters on social media seemed to dismiss the crime on racial grounds. Why are we paying so much attention to the kidnapping of an attractive, privileged white woman? That's racist. Others seem to blame Fletcher for the atrocity committed against her. Why was she jogging at that hour anyway in Memphis? Come on. The point they're making was clear. Everyone knows the rules. Liza Fletcher violated those rules. You can't go outside at certain hours in certain places in America, obviously. And if you do, if you violate the rules, you run the risk of being raped and murdered. That's how things work in this country. So adapt, accept it, move on. To some extent, if we're being honest, all of us feel that way. Whether we articulate it or not, we know what the rules are. We know what we can and cannot do in modern America. Nothing is ever spelled out. Nothing can be spelled out at risk of punishment. But everyone knows what the parameters are. Cities like Memphis or Baltimore or Detroit or Montgomery or Gary, Indiana or Wilmington, Delaware or a dozen other formerly prosperous, orderly little cities across the country were destroyed forever by the rioting that accompanied our last progressive social revolution more than 50 years ago. Politicized criminals started breaking things, torching buildings, stealing, and immediately anyone with a decent job just left. They pulled their kids out of school, sold the house or not, didn't matter, and they split for somewhere else. And mostly they have never come back. That is true not simply in Memphis, but in places all over the country. So it seems a little weird to a lot of people when someone like Liza Fletcher, someone who could live anywhere, voluntarily moves back to a place like Memphis. Not to some suburb of Memphis, but to the city of Memphis. That seems weird to people. But it's not weird. It's not odd at all when you think about it. Liza Fletcher was from Memphis. She grew up there, and she had a right to come back. This was her country, too, just as it's your country, too. An American citizen should be able to live 
or walk anywhere in America without being raped or murdered for it, period. That is the baseline requirement for civilization. It's called order. But increasingly, that is not what we have. What we have is a country where you just can't go some places. You're not wanted there, and it's too dangerous for you to go. Most people accept this by default, but we should never accept this under any circumstances. To accept something is to concede that it is more or less normal. Once we acknowledge something as normal, whether it's children being castrated in the name of trans rights or women being murdered by rapists who should have been in prison but weren't because equity, once we accept that as normal, we are stuck with it forever. It is the new status quo. It will never change except to get worse. The good people who lived in Memphis a century ago would never believe what has happened to the city they built. They would weep if they saw it. That will be the experience of every American before long. Our entire, our entire country will be Memphis if we don't put a stop to this insanity right now with as much force as is required. So Joe Biden gave the most threatening presidential speech in American history last week. He spoke in front of a blood red backdrop flanked by U.S. Marines. And he delivered, if you take a step back, the blueprint for the rest of his administration. Criminalize dissent, effectively ban the opposition, and use the federal agencies to transform America into a one-party state. It's called authoritarianism. Here's what Biden said in a speech the White House advertised as non-political. Watch this. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. They promote authoritarian leaders, and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. It's enough to make your head spin. Donald Trump has been banned from speaking in public. He has been censored at the behest of the Democratic Party. He can no longer go on social media or electronic town square. He's been totally erased. And yet, Joe Biden says, Trump and his supporters promote authoritarian leaders. And he says this at exactly the moment that he is sending billions of dollars to Ukraine and its authoritarian leaders every month. Authoritarian? Oh, that just scratches the surface. Over the past year and a half, the government of Ukraine has jailed its top political rival. It has banned opposition parties and it has outlawed independent media. Oh, but that's not authoritarian. What's authoritarian is disagreeing with Joe Biden. Do that and Joe Biden will stand in front of the military he controls and declare that you were an enemy of the state. So watching the fanatical support of the White House for the actual authoritarians who run Ukraine, you can sort of see the template here. But of course, as is always true when Joe Biden speaks, you can't hold him entirely responsible because not only did he not write the words, he's not aware that he spoke them. Just the other day, he said, after giving the speech, when we're quoting, I don't consider any Trump supporter a threat to the country. That was on Friday. Our media seemed to ignore that. They'd be very disappointed if they heard it because they listened exactly to the words Biden spoke. 
and they love them. Watch. President Biden gave a really strong speech, and, and I loved it. I, I, I believe everything he said. It was an urgent wartime address. And something else that really stuck out to me is that he almost seemed to sort of be reclaiming patriotism. If you look up mm -hmm. fascism in the dictionary, you're going to find all of those things. So I'm really not sure what the Republicans are all upset about other than the fact that it was named. Obviously, Republicans, I think, are the biggest threat to democracy. We don't separate right-wing extremists and Republican Party anymore. Hillary Clinton told the truth when he said, she said that there were um, deplorable people in the Republican Party supporting Donald Trump, and they were, he was exciting a lot of racism and misogyny and bigotry. The Republicans who were like, oh, he's calling us fascist. If you're not a fascist, he's not talking about you. So lighten <laughs> up. Oh, so if you're innocent, you have nothing to hide. Don't worry. It's amazing how Soviet the whole thing is. Joe Biden calls for political purges and law enforcement crackdowns on his political opponents and state media cheer him on. In a speech about the threats to our republic, Joe Biden doesn't mention anything but domestic threats. He doesn't mention China a single time. He didn't mention the border or fentanyl or crime. He only mentioned people who oppose him politically. And once again, like the obedient little servants they are, our media cheer him on. You have to wonder about their views on authoritarianism. Obviously, they're for it. In fact, one of these journalists wrote the speech. That would be John Meacham, who wrote for many years at Newsweekly's and now is America's most banal historian. Apparently, he had a hand in writing the speech last week. He also redecorated the Oval Office at Joe Biden's request. He is now our propagandist-in-chief. And it's not hard to see what inspired Meacham to write that speech on Thursday. Meacham admires autocrats who silence their political opponents. Earlier this year, Meacham went on television to compare the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, to Winston Churchill and the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy. We want to prepare you now for a torrent of cliches because those are the only chunks of language John Meacham is capable of using. Now that you're prepared, here it is. Quote, it may sound sentimental, but it has the virtue of being true. Right. So at the same time, Zelensky, this Winston Churchill figure, was criminalizing dissent in his country. He shut down three television stations. As his spokesman put it, those media have become one of the tools of war against Ukraine. So they are blocked in order to protect national security. Oh, so those TV stations are sort of like Donald Trump or Fox News. We need to silence them in order to preserve our democracy. Democracy, it was only one side gets to speak. So it really is democracy circa 1972 Bulgaria. It's a democratic republic, meaning the people who live there have no representation whatsoever. The party decides. It's hard to believe any of this is happening, but it is. And on Thursday, Joe Biden and his speechwriter made it explicit. So where's the pushback to this? No president's ever given a speech like this. So you wonder, where are those pious defenders of our norms Joe Biden announces that we need a one-party state, and he says it flanked by active-duty U.S. Marines, and nobody says a word? Okay, wow, this is uh, Tucker. <laughs> Hyperbolic is uh, understating it. So let's say hello to Duvid. Duvid, how's it going, man? Rokashem. Rokashem. Okay, so extraordinary story out of uh, Germany that you at me so what were what were some of the things that uh, jumped out to you about this story about uh, some jews in germany are concerned about the large number of non-jews who are converting to judaism 
and in part to assuage uh, guilt over having perhaps uh, Nazi ancestors, uh, a whole bunch of factors working into this. But uh, what do you think of that story? Yeah, I guess it was a 2016 book that was uh, written in German. And so it was just an article in today's uh, JTA that uh, that I saw and thought, thought thought you'd find interesting. And I, mean, I haven't seen the data, but uh, you know it's not it's not surprising that we could talk about you know some of the details, some of the history of conversion and uh, the social dynamics, and you know the role that conversion has in Judaism, where you know Jews in general feel that you know we we should be the gatekeepers of who could enter um but it's not necessarily that way and that's why conversion's one of the most contested uh, issues within uh you know Judaism Israeli law you know 75 years uh more than 70 years after the creation of Israel the who is the Jew question remains unresolved okay and uh, let me read some excerpts from this article here in JTA uh, too many Germans converting to Judaism, the debate is roiling Germany's Jewish community. And so talks about this cantor, Avatar Gerstetter. And the first German-born female cantor is now persona non grata in her synagogue after she penned a column critical of conversion in Germany for a major non-Jewish newspaper. So some of the criticism she has received is that she published it in a non-Jewish publication. So there's concern. We, we probably should be making this this inter-Jewish dispute something that uh, the, the Goyim is seeing. So she wrote a column called Why the Increasing Number of Converts is a Problem for Judaism. She charges that too many people in Germany are converting for the wrong reasons, such as to atone for their family's Nazi past or to identify with the victims rather than the perpetrators. And she criticizes the fact that converts increasingly fill numerous Jewish leadership roles in Germany. Anything there you want to jump on, David? Yes, I, I guess this is a, a popular cantor. And, you know, being a female cantor, it, uh, you know, she's probably reform, um, you know, voicing these comp, uh, you know, complaints. So for the purpose of the JTA story, they give, uh, you know, a lot of these comments regarding this uh, one specific woman. woman. Okay, sorry, some uh, technical issues here on, on my end. Uh, let's uh, let's try you again. David, are you still there? Okay, hang on. Let me sort this out. Settings, sound. Okay, uh, here we go. Okay, David, we should be able to hear you now. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. Um, yeah, your mic had minor issues, but it sounds like it's better now. Um, yes, yeah, so I guess there's two parts of the story. One is uh, this complaint about this popular female cantor, and uh, you know, she probably reformed being a female cantor. And then this other is this uh, book from uh, a few years ago. And, you know, some of these details of conversion, so the history after the war, where you had uh, mostly spouses of Jewish men who had married uh, non-Jewish women, uh, but it helped them survive during the war, to the phenomenon that, uh, you know, self-hating Germans 
don't want to identify with being German. And I guess, you know, to some extent to resolve the dissonance, there's an aspect of becoming Jews. And then they take upon the victim complex where, you know, they feel like, well, now that I'm a convert to Judaism, um, I could talk like a Jew who was persecuted as opposed to, uh, you know, the German that they are that, uh, you know, converted and hence uh, the complaint. And then obviously uh, they mentioned later in the article if, about rising to positions of power, which, uh, you know, me as a half Jew, uh, you know, experienced that in, uh, and, you know, mentioned that there, you know, in uh, Metro Detroit uh, all over is, you know, this concept that converts to Judaism can't have positions of power in the community, that you can't convert to Judaism and then become a leader among Jews. And, uh, I mean, to some extent you can. And, uh, you know, many converts, like, uh, you know, do become somewhat prominent. Uh, but then there's going to be the pushback from the community. It's like, you know, we want to be led by Jews, not converts to Judaism. And then if you are a convert to Judaism, you're going to constantly have these, uh, you know, these tests of your uh, your faith and your uh, loyalty that, uh, you know, to some extent uh, are, are never ending. Right. And uh, this article talks about a, a book that was written on conversion to Judaism in, in Germany. Ironically, this, this book was written by a convert, and uh, the book's called The Staging of Jewishness. And it's an examination of conversions to Judaism after 1945. And so it says that for most Jews who respond to prospective converts, the staging of Jude Jewishness is secondary to questions of power, belonging, and authenticity. So immediately after World War II, German Gentiles seeking to convert usually did so on account of their Jewish partners. Today, most converts do it of their own accord. So like everything else, time and place just plays an enormous role here. It's not like there's just one monolithic path to conversion to Judaism. In different times, different places, under different circumstances, conversion is easier or more difficult. It is more encouraged or more discouraged. And obviously, Jews who survived in Germany during World War II because they had a non-Jewish spouse, right? There are, there are hundreds of Jews who survived in Germany during World War II because they had a non-Jewish spouse. It completely makes sense why the Jewish community would want to welcome them. And the article points out that there wasn't any formal rabbinic conversion process for about 15 years after World War II. The, the community would do it. So I notice so many people think, oh, conversion, it has to be done by three rabbis, and you go to a weekly conversion class, and there are all these steps that you have to take. But like everything else, that's contingent. It changes with time and place. So for the first 15 years after World War II, conversion was done by the community. It wasn't done by the rabbis. There's, there's nothing that only a rabbi can do in Judaism. So everything that you think uh, is, is exclusive to rabbis just not true. In certain times, certain places, it may be exclusive to rabbis, but there's, there's no distinctive, powerful prerogatives inherent in, in being a rabbi. A, a learned lay Jew in different times, different places can do all the same things. Anything you want to add, David? Yeah, I mean, presumably this article is referring mostly to uh, reform conflict uh, converts anyways, 
and it's not even referring to uh, you know, the right of return in Israel. And so you know, a lot of this orthodoxy refers to specific Israel and uh, you know, because there is a factual control of even to the Haredi or ultra-Orthodox control over conversion uh, for Israeli citizenship and being accepted in Israel. And, uh, you know, in America, you know, there's the list of, of rabbis whose conversions uh, aren't accepted. Um, but the majority of conversions in America, I, I think over 90% of them, uh, come from non-Orthodox rabbis. And I would assume also the case in Germany. And uh, it, you know, if you're trying to become part of an Orthodox community or you just want the official, like, I'm a convert from the Orthodox, I'm you know, accepted by Israel. And you know, if you're accepted by the Orthodox, um, you're accepted by all Jews, which I said isn't necessarily the case um, because it's somewhat like joining a club. And like you, like you, you, know, you said from the article, there's board of directors, there's prominent Jews. And if you've been accepted into the Jewish community, finding a rabbi to rubber stamp it is relatively easy in the wider Jewish community, um, you know, especially if it's like keeping money Jewish, intermarriage in the Jewish community where a prominent member marries a non-Jew and they want to keep, uh, you know, say the money or power within the community and corruption within orthodoxy. So orthodoxy, like there's going to be much more higher standards, but you know, certainly within orthodoxy, uh, you know, like Ivanka Trump never covering your hair, uh, never, you know, never doing uh, many of what would be considered the mainstays of uh, orthodoxy um, that, you know, very rarely do you hear Haredi Jews, you know, saying, uh, complaining about Ivanka not covering her hair. And, you know, she's obviously a very prominent person. Um, so it's an interesting uh, dynamic. And, uh you know, then also the, they don't mention in this article, but there's probably an element of colorism where generally Jews, especially like in, in marriage or uh, conversion, prefer, you know, God forbid, uh, whiter people. And so, you know, if Germans want to convert to Judaism, uh, you know, for example, it's illegal in Israel, it's illegal for Palestinians or people from certain nations uh, there. Uh, to convert to Judaism, period. Like, there's no path to becoming Jewish if you're Palestinian. It's illegal under Israeli law, even if you marry a Jew. And uh, like Atreans, it's also illegal for Africans who illegally migrate into Israel to convert to Judaism. So even if, uh, you know, you're, so to say, a, a true convert from that nation due to larger economic laws, uh, you know, that has a certain coloristic element to it, uh, there's no path to conversion uh, to Judaism. So presumably there's a lot more exceptions made for uh, your whiter people to convert to Judaism. Right. And uh, by, by the, the color element, we're not, we're not just talking about uh, skin color. We're talking about what skin color represents. So it's not the brown skin that prevents Palestinians from converting to Judaism because plenty of Ethiopian or darker people than Palestinians are converting to Orthodox Judaism. It's that the, they are Palestinians and there's a life and death struggle between, between Jews and Arabs. And when we talk about skin color in general, we're not talking about skin color. We're talking about skin color as a as a sign 
of of certain generalizable traits we recognize that in nature as with human beings that uh, living creatures tend to be color-coded so in, in nature if you see a living creature who is bright red that usually signals danger right and so nature color codes for our benefit and so when when we talk about skin color what we're talking about are signs and symbols for a whole bunch of character traits that uh, frequently are generalizable in with with skin color so for example jews tend to be much more comfortable with white people than with any other race so Let's have a look here. Just get an update here. Duva, just hang on. An update here on California. California is something called renewables, and this is the future. How's that going to work? Well, just a few hours ago, California's grid operator delivered some stunning news. It issued an upgraded level two emergency alert. The grid operator is telling Californians to, quote, be ready for potential rotating power outages. Blackouts are expected tonight in our biggest state. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, just released a video telling residents to do their part to protect the energy grid. These triple-digit temperatures throughout much of our state are, are leading, not surprisingly, to record demand on the energy grid. Everyone has to do their part to help step up for just a few more days. And today and tomorrow afternoon after 4 p.m., in particular 4 p.m., please turn your thermostat up to 78 degrees or higher and avoid to the extent possible using any really large appliances. Oh, so you run the state into the ground, make it look like Guinea-Bissau, our richest state is now our most dysfunctional state. You did that, Gavin Newsom. You and the one-party political machine in your state, but it's the residents' fault. Do your part. Don't use your appliances. This is insane. Well, it happens. So, yeah, I have my portable air conditioner set at 60, but my, my room temperature is about uh, 83, 80, 84 degrees uh, right now. But, uh, David, what did you think uh, about my point that it's not skin color as such that prevents people from converting to Judaism. It's skin color as a representative of other things. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it, uh, you, you could put it like that and, and say, you know, if you look at nations that, uh, you know, generally Jews are prestigious people and even Israel's doing uh, pretty well um, and the few nations that uh, you you would put uh, higher than Israel are usually Northern European nations, which uh, you know would be uh, whiter nations. I mean, there is a certain colorism, skin color element to it. But I mean, the Israeli law would apply even if you were blonde hair, blue eyed Palestinian; it'd still be illegal for you to uh, become a Jew. Uh, but uh, you know, there is there is a skin color. Uh, you know, at least a uh, visual element to it. But uh, you know, you talk about uh, standards of living, education standards, where you know, Jews probably prefer to have elites convert. You know, so someone like Ivanka Trump, um, you know, people that have college educations, people that have uh, prestige, and uh, you know, to some extent just being German, um, you may, may be considered a step over being Jewish. And, you know, you could look at, uh, you know, Jews generally try to get into white neighborhoods 
not the other way around, even Israelis, that, uh, you know, Israelis generally try to, you know, more, more than come to Israel, try to leave Israel, and their prime destination is majority white areas, uh, you know, probably like in L.A., um, you know, like where you're at, you're in one of the whiter areas, and the majority of the Jews would probably to prefer to live, you know, in the whiter parts of uh, of L.A., uh, but, you know, you want to put, okay, white is just a correlate for other factors, so it's not necessarily like a racism skin color. It could be, well, they prefer to live in the lower crime areas, the higher educated areas, the areas with more um, economic opportunity. Um, but, uh, you know, like here in Metro Detroit, the majority of people who want to convert to Judaism are are, are Blacks. You know, it could just be demographic and even Orthodox Judaism. The majority of people that, you know, apply or desire to convert to Orthodox Judaism are Blacks. And uh, it's possible or likely that Blacks will have a harder time fitting in the Jewish community than white converts and that the community makes it easier for whites to convert than uh, than Blacks. And I think you've mentioned that, like in L.A., um, you know, Hispanics or whatever the case is, that uh, there'll be certain uh, communal factors. So, you know, if you're looking at this way, that they've made it really easy for Germans to convert to Judaism, so much that you're you're complaining now that uh, th there's like a demographic uh, threat of uh, you know a sizable amount of uh, German converts to Judaism, and they're taking over. They have positions of power in uh, the community. Like is okay. There's a handful of uh, African American converts, uh, but none of them really have positions of power. I've never seen like African American convert rise to be head of a Jewish organization. Uh, but you know, in Germany, if you're having German converts, and obviously they're German citizens, uh, you know, there, there's maybe in Germany, um, if you're German, you feel a little bit more comfortable there than uh, than a Jew. And so they're rising to uh, positions of power in the Jewish community. And then you're having a pushback, uh, you know, saying like, well, I know, um, you know, there's obvious reasons why they're, why they're, why they're, we're making it easier for Germans to convert to Judaism. But like, come on, we can't let them take over our community. We can't let them have, uh, you, you know, have positions of leadership. We want to be led, so to say, by ethnic us. Okay, so there's a comment in the chat that uh, converts will always be outsiders. And along with everything else, that is contingent. So I, for example, I have lived in and around uh, Beverly Hills for, since I moved to Los Angeles in 1994, so for about 28 years, I have lived in and around uh, Beverly Hills. I've, I've been going to the same synagogues for 28 years. I'm a very known quantity, and so I have the the hacksher of some people, like I have their approval. And so for some communities and some people, you know, I am far more of an insider than all sorts of born Jews who they either don't know very well or they don't feel comfortable with. So, yeah, all things being equal, uh, people who are born Jewish are going to feel more comfortable with other people who are born Jewish, but all things aren't equal. So... Uh, Jews also feel more comfortable with people who are at their approximate level of Jewish observance. They're also often more comfortable with people who are at their, say, their approximate level of Torah learning 
or they feel more comfortable with people who've imbibed the, the norms, the rituals, the characteristics, the, the philosophies of a particular community. Uh, people feel more comfortable with those people who they've known for years and, and for decades. So it's not ipso facto the convert is always the outsider. If the convert is a valuable member of the community, he may very well be an insider in that community. All things being equal, yeah, being born Jewish, right, you're, you're more likely to be at ease with, with fellow Jews. But all things aren't born equal. Uh, plenty of Jews have mental health problems. So you think for, let's take your average Jew, would he feel more comfortable with someone who's born Jewish with considerable mental health problems or someone like myself who is a sparkling exemplar of you know, good mental health? Or would someone who's born Jewish feel more comfortable with a Jew with a, an active drug addiction or myself who's emotionally sober? Would a, someone born Jewish feel more comfortable with someone born Jewish who has not been employed for 15 years or, you know, a hardworking person like myself? So conversion is just one factor in determining you know, how much you're going to fit into a community. So generally speaking, among the Orthodox Jews that I mix with, uh, my being a convert simply doesn't come up. Now, it may very well be there in the back of their heads. They, they may very well say something. Uh, but I don't think I'm an obtuse person. You know, I'm fairly aware. Now, I don't, I don't push myself forward. I don't try to take leadership roles. I, I'm very happy doing, you know, very you know, elementary levels of, of volunteering. I, I, I'm happy to do the equivalent of sweeping the floor and uh, cleaning the windows. So I'm not looking to take a leadership role. As an example, you know, plenty of plenty of people born Jewish feel more comfortable with me than they do with the dozens of acquaintances that they have who are born Jewish. Uh, David, anything there you want to react to? Yeah, I mean, two, a few things. Like One on the list that I made for you of various things that uh, you know, I found uh, surprising was that I would be able to play a unique role in the Jewish community as a half Jew. And there were certain points where, where it hit me, um, you know, where, where Jews or rabbis told people, including non-Jews, that I was a half Jew and it seemed to have a strategic uh, role. And then, uh, you know, that non-Jews dealt with me differently or that the community really just didn't care that much about what I did in terms like you know, their own kids, they would go uh, you know, way out of the way to, you know, that their own kids would uh, stay religious. And like, even if I broke Sabbath, like people didn't really care that much. They, they had lower expectations um, of me. You know, we mentioned also, um, you know, that this Satmer uh, Kabbalah guy used to study with, older man uh you know, said intelligence is the ability to get things done and what i mentioned like politics is somewhat like the problem of evil um but you could consider navigating systems and local politics that yeah probably most of your local synagogues probably have board of director directors and elections maybe like chabad or a handful of them don't but probably uh like private synagogues but i would guess the majority of the synagogues you go to probably have board of directors and elections, and you could have taken that route. You could have probably ran for a position on the board of directors of your synagogue, and uh, you know, maybe even worked your way up to uh, you know try to be a president of a synagogue, and then you might have had more issues. So you say you didn't uh, 
have conflict, but you didn't uh, uh, choose that route. And you know, we'll go back to talking about Germany and specifically the Holocaust angle and what it means for Germans. But I think you know, just for you specifically, is that will you as a as a blue-eyed Anglo man have a a position of power over Jews that typically Jews want to be you? You know, we assimilate to you. We assimilate to Anglo's, and uh, you know, so a lot of Jews are proud of our Jewish identity. Uh, but uh, most Jews, if we try to blend in and uh, obscure our Jewish identity, we're going to tear Anglo. And so, you know, at that extent, okay, you're a convert, but you're an Anglo. And it, especially in Hollywood, Hollywood is the most famous, you know, there's a lot of places of Jews who assimilated Anglo. So, uh, you know, I think that that would probably be like a trump card uh over a lot of Jews, you're saying, okay, you're, you know, part Chinese, but you're basically a pure-blooded Anglo, and uh, that's generally uh, what Jews are tearing to. And uh, you mentioned that uh, Jews didn't give Ivanka Trump a hard time for not covering her hair, and plenty of famous Rebbitsons have not covered their hair. This is this is a part of, of Jewish observance that uh, changes dramatically depending on time and place. You, you have prominent Orthodox rabbis who didn't wear a yarmulke when they would go to university, for example. So all sorts of things that we, that we regard as an eternal part of Judaism are really uh, contingent, like everything else, uh, depending on certain times and uh, certain places. Also, Jews... Go ahead, dude. Like Rodney said, situational. I mean, she was in Manhattan where, you know, of the modern Orthodox, probably the majority don't cover their hair as if she would have been in Brooklyn or Williamsburg, um, you know, and the high 90% of Orthodox Jews cover their hair. Right. So it depends on, on time and place. And uh, Jews, even even religious Jews, are incredibly pragmatic. So plenty of Orthodox Jews are willing to make accommodations with people or willing to, you know, see the the usefulness of of another Jew or a non-Jew who's not not religious. So Christians that I grew up with often looked at people through an either-or prism. Either someone's a Christian or not, you know, either someone believes in God or they don't. But Jews are much more pragmatic. They, they don't see the world through a prism of, oh, does someone believe in God or not? You want to say anything about the pragmatism of Jewish life? And even the conversion is not based on belief. It's not really a belief test. It's a practice test, and it's a commitment to practice. There's really no um, question of, do you believe? It's a question of, do you commit to uh, allegiance to the Jewish people, and do you commit to uh, following the Jewish law for the rest of your life? And it's not really a question of belief. And yeah, I mean, like I said, the the practicality in uh, you know the extent of if uh, you know if uh, Jews want to get ahead, uh, you know, someone was mentioning about uh, you know the kind of reality that uh, Arab nations treated Jews better than Christians. But the, you know, the reality is Jews wanted to be in Europe because Europe was the powerhouse. And most Jews, to the you know, vast majority, even Sparty Jews, preferred to be in Europe even under conditions of anti-Semitism because that was where it was at. And uh, 
you know, so saying if the power is in the wider community in the European nations, Jews tear towards Europe. And there's also like social activism and justice, but even to, you know, a lot of people like, like social justice in America is under the mantle of being white, where, where your know, Jews are white and therefore have the ability to uh, you know, be from the majority class, uh, power class to uh, uh, you know, administer and uh, affect uh, social justice. But yeah, I mean, it's a practicality, like we've said many times when we were talking more about straight Jewish law, there's two things, you know, the reason why Jewish communities tend to blend in with their surrounding, because there's two things that trump Jewish law, and that's safety. Um, basically, all Jewish law could be amended for safety and getting ahead in business. Not all Jewish law could be uh, amended for uh, getting ahead in business, but the majority of Jewish law uh, you, you know, besides for very strict things, could be amended for getting ahead in uh, in business. So you know, like it's designed to be practical, like that. Judaism wants you to uh, get ahead and succeed. Right. I mean, it wants you to be able to support your family. So parnasa, ma making a living, is is sacred in Judaism. The Bible is sacred. Certain times and places are sacred. That there's a holiness to to life in Judaism, not just uh, participation in inside uh, a synagogue. So, yeah, there, there's a there's a level of pragmatism and flexibility with, with Jewish law, and and that's built into Jewish law. So that you have statements like the the fifth volume of the Shulchan Aruch, the the 15th century compendium of Jewish law. The fifth volume is common sense, and so you have Jewish law, and you have commentaries on Jewish law. But Jewish law still has to be applied at different times and in different places. And when those times and places change, how you apply Jewish law is going to change. So let well, me that's universal and saying that uh, as an exception, that if there's straight Jewish law, like this is what you're supposed to do as a Jew, these two exceptions of safety, security, and business are universal. In any place where Jews are living, they will make exceptions to Jewish law for getting ahead in business. That's less than safety. Almost anything could be a bridge for safety. Uh, but, uh, you know, no, that's a universal from Talmudic times, biblical times till today that uh, getting ahead in business is important. And uh, certain aspects of Jewish law, if it conflicts with getting ahead in business, uh, you know, because like getting ahead in business is like Jewish law. So if there's aspects of Jewish law that conflict with getting ahead in business, um, the Jewish law will try to uh, you know, make some sort of loophole or exception so that the person could get a whole, get ahead in business. But again, that's contingent. So if if Jews, it, it all depends on what's most likely to be for the welfare of the community. So if you're living at a time and place where Jewish business success is is uh, threatening the non-Jews and causing a tremendous blowback on on Jews, then there are going to be fewer accommodations made for uh, achieving business success. So rabbis and Jewish communities take into consideration, you know, what's going on in the in the wider community. What will be the repercussions of of what we're doing? So uh, success in business that's that's contingent. All right, you're not going to. You're not well, getting... secondary to security. 
Yeah, security. I don't know if it's contingent. I was saying like in any case. Contingent where, is secondary, meaning depend upon. Well, it's like to, to security. But if it's a question like, well, can not, you. Not just strictly security in terms of life and death, but the welfare of the community as well. Right. Sometimes the welfare of the community discourages certain, you know, free market, you know, acquisitions of wealth. So, for example, there are limits on on setting up a business next to a, to a, a same business. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm just making the point that it's universal in all Jewish communities around the world that you could bend Jewish law uh, to get ahead in business. And there's other considerations. I'm just saying, no matter what, you could bend Jewish, like you, like you said, the security of the community. Uh, you know, certain aspects of the community are more important uh, than business. But uh, you know, getting ahead in business is also seen like the security of the community. And you know, so things like shaving, things like changing names, uh, you know, certain even you know, certain aspects of ritual uh, observance, education of kids, and so on and so on. Um, you know, that's you know, like Haredism. Haredism are extreme, uh, and even Haredim will make extreme exceptions to uh, get ahead in business. Right, but again, it depends on the community and the time and place. So, a a German community, German Jewish community, the the Yeki community is extremely strict on on ethical dealings. And if you do business in an unethical way, that that community wants wants nothing to do with you. You you're very likely to be expelled. So, a proper, polite, um, upstanding character is absolutely essential for being part of a Yeki Jewish community. Uh, business ethics are much less flexible among the Lithuanian crowd than, say, the Hasidic crowd. So you're much more likely to get uh, lectures and an emphasis on business ethics in a modern Orthodox synagogue than a Hasidic synagogue. So, 100%. Yeah. But it's still the Yeki community will make exceptions to Jewish law to get ahead of business. I mean, you're not questioning that. You're just saying that ethics to them, they're not going to they're not going to make exceptions in ethics, but they're certainly going to make exceptions in uh, yes. in ritualistic things or various other things to get ahead in business. That's uh, universal in Judaism. So there's a yes, as long as it it doesn't act against the the overall welfare of the community. So life in Judaism is very different from life just as an American because life in Judaism is much more group centered. So the focus for the average American is on the individual and becoming all you can be as an individual. The focus as a member of the Jewish community is the welfare of the community. And that means frequently repressing or sublimating the things that you want to do for the welfare of the community, making sacrifices for the welfare of the community. And that frequently requires that you you know, hold back on your individual preferences. Now, Ani says in the chat, can I worship idols if it gets me ahead in business? And I'll take that question seriously. I heard this joke from Orthodox rabbis. So uh, one man, uh, one man who operates a gift shop calls a supplier and says, you know, I need a, uh, a thousand crucifixes. And the supplier says, well, do you want them with or without the mamzer? Meaning, do you want the, you know, with or without Jesus on, on the cross? So, yeah, there'd be plenty of Jews who've released uh, Christmas albums or who have, you know, some tangential or more visceral uh, participation in idolatry and uh, have done it to, you know, get ahead in their career. But, yeah, I mean, like you're saying on that, that, I mean, straight idol worship 
is there's not even an exception for security. We're supposed to choose death over that. But, you know, what's the exact case that you have to take death for? Uh, what's the case that you could do a little bit of idol worship uh, for security? And what's the case you could do, you know, like a little bit of idol worship to get ahead in business? And, you know, so the level that that will be called, you know, saying what's actually idol worship? Um, and then putting it back, like you've mentioned the Yekis, and like I was saying, the Anglo passing. So most Yekis wouldn't consider it unethical to Anglo pass. So if you're a Yeki Jew and you go out into business and don't wear a yarmulke and give over a Anglo name that you've taken on for the purpose of business and, uh, and people don't even know you're Jewish, uh, that would be considered fine. Um, you know, but you know, doing unethical business practices like being a slumlord or uh, you know, like insurance fraud or something like that, like the Yakis would say, absolutely not. But I mentioned like the Anglo passing that Yaki Jews certainly would be very likely to Anglo pass. Right. So if Yaki Jews simply means a Jew of German origin, it doesn't necessarily mean a Jew's ever spent any time in Germany, but uh, it's a it's a Jew who tends to highly assimilate to the Gentile culture in which he lives, while at the same time maintaining various levels of, of Jewish observance, but doing it in a way that uh, fits in with the, the wider society. So Yaki Jews in America tend to be strong American patriots. Yaki Jews in England tend to be strong English patriots in addition to their Jewish commitment. So a Yaki Jew knows about baseball. A Yaki Jew can talk to you about football. You know, a Yaki Jew feels, you know, very comfortable in America, while a Hasidic Jew from Eastern Europe is much more likely to have, you know, more fears, concerns, and even negative feelings about wider Gentile culture. So by and large, Jews who come from Germany towards Western Europe tend to have quite positive views of non-Jews, and Jews whose origins are Eastern Europe, so east of Germany, tend to have much more concern and fear and, and negative uh, feelings about non-Jews. Anything you want to add, David? You know, that's the element also of the multiculturalism and Anglo-passing, because the Yekis basically hinge them, themselves on white-passing, as opposed to the Hasidim, who more hinge themselves on multiculturalism. So if you're a Hasid who kept your Yiddish name, kept your language, lives in an area where there's very few whites um, and didn't assimilate, uh, and now America's became multicultural. So to say, like, no, I mean, in Brooklyn, Hasidic guys feel just as comfortable with their Americanness as Yekis because New York's a multicultural place. And they're one of the accepted New Yorkers. They know the law. Uh, you know, they know, you know, they're on the government programs. Like I said, like the police, uh, you know, like you beat up an Orthodox Jew, God forbid, like, you know, they call the police and the governor and they have, you know, the Shomron and they have their official government representatives as opposed to the Yeki community, um, like the secular Jewish community, largely hinged upon assimilation and that assimilation was towards uh, the Anglo norm, and that might even pivot back towards uh, the, you know, the the conservophobia book 
of uh, conservatism that, you know, if you're a yucky and you've aimed towards this conservative culture, and then you have this Hasidic Jew who's like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm just as American as you are. The fact that you, uh, you know, uh, assimilated towards Anglo culture doesn't make you any more American than I am. You know, Rashida Tlaib is my congresswoman. Who the hell is your congresswoman? So I like wide open. I, I don't have a strong opinion on what what standards uh, Jews should use vis-a-vis -vis converts or whether Jews should be more encouraging or more discouraging. I, I think it boils down to what's in the best interests of a particular Jewish community at a certain time and place. And there will be certain times, certain places for certain communities where it's very much in their interest to bring in converts, right? It makes the community stronger. There are more numbers. There's there's more money. Uh, there, there's more influence if you bring in the, the right type of converts. And then at other times and places, it's completely against the uh, community's interest to to bring in converts. So let me go back to this book, and in particular, I'm reading a a review of this book by Barbara Steiner on conversion to Judaism in Germany after World War II. So, what's uh, generally true for all conversions, whether Judaism or any other faith, is a conversion solves a biographical problem. So. For example, for me, I yearned for a path back to God, and I yearned for a path back to religion and a community and Judaism. Like, wow, this kind of makes sense to me, and it offered a, a path back to God and to a concrete religious community that wasn't contaminated by my complicated relationship with my father, the evangelical Christian preacher. So I, I developed an allergy to Christianity. I encountered Dennis Prager. He became a father-like figure for me. And so converting to Judaism solved some biographical problems. I had a path back to God that, that wasn't Christianity, that, that wasn't Islam. I had a path back to God that, that made sense to me. I had a path back to God that was fascinating to me. And I had a path back to God through a community in which I quickly found myself feeling very comfortable. So I tend to have an above average verbal IQ. When I joined an Ashkenazi Jewish community, I, I'm mixing with other people with a high verbal IQ. I feel comfortable in, in Jewish life. It, uh, resonates with me. So what biographical problems did uh, becoming an Orthodox Jew solve for you, David? Um, I mean, it's probably similar to you where I had identity crisis, a lot of personal issues, and I needed to be recreated. And Orthodox Judaism allowed me to recreate myself in a way that I felt comfortable in a you know community and style. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, being half Jewish and having, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, a grandfather's grandfather uh, that was a rabbi, grandfather's father that, you know, was Orthodox, like in L.A., you know, my, my grandmother, grandmother's father was in L.A. And, and he married a secular woman and raised his kids secular, but he put on tefillin, um, you, you know, I think his whole life. Even, uh, you know, he was born in the Ukraine, but uh, kept on putting on tefillin, trying to be observant himself, even though he married secular and raised his kids secular. So like the Zionist dream, um, there was some element of returning 
that I felt like I was returning to uh, the path of my ancestors or I was rediscovering uh, some something. But in uh, that respect also was very similar because I, I was a troubled kid in many ways and had identity issues and uh, you didn't really feel part of anything. Maybe I was smart and had chances of getting ahead, but uh, you was kind of a loner, didn't have many friends. Uh, and, and Judaism provided me the structure, provided me a community to uh, get ahead in. And, uh, you know, like I was mentioning, uh, you know, the, the things we've been talking about, even, uh, you know, like womenizing, God forbid, even among the Orthodox Jews and Hasidim, you know, it's like, you know, men are men. Uh, but, you know, day trading, business, uh, working out, uh, fitness, uh, you know, almost anything, the Orthodox Jewish community, the Hasidic community provided me a strong network of, uh, you know, people that uh, appeared, you know, largely were interested in me getting ahead. Yeah. And uh, back to this uh, book review here, it uh, says that solving a biographical problem does not imply a deficient personality structure because converting to Judaism requires psychic stability. So I remember I had a girlfriend who kind of took it on herself. She was not Jewish. She was uh, Filipina. And she took it on herself to start her conversion to Judaism. And and the rabbis picked up that there was something a little off about her. And so they they made it a requirement very quickly to go to psychotherapy. And so it, it's uh, easy to become attracted to Judaism from, you know, all sorts of uh, psychic disturbances. But to actually pull off a conversion to Judaism, it requires that you be psychically strong, right? You're not going to pull it off if you're crazy. Any thoughts on that, David? Well, there's different types of crazy. And, and like, I'm kind of crazy, but, you know, like in a stable um you know, like I said, that there's not really that many belief tests. It's more practice tests, and uh, you're following the law, a commitment to the community. So you could believe crazy things. You could even occasionally have outbursts about the crazy things that you believe. Um, but it's more uh, action. So if you have uh, beh behavioral problems, that I think that would be more uh, problematic than uh, your know, beliefs. Or, or even uh, occasional verbal um, outbreaks. Like I and, think about one girl, a couple of women I know who are alcoholics, and that they they seemingly did everything right, but their alcoholism in after years of going through the conversion program, their alcoholism just blew up their their possibilities of converting. Sorry, David, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I mean that's a good you did, and and saying okay, so. You know, I have psychological issues. Let's say you're, um, you know, you're, you're, what is it, psychotic or, or uh, psych narcissistic? You're, you know, narcissistic or, or uh, you know, I'm saying that, that uh, that's a psychological disorder that could cause behavioral uh, problems. But, uh, you know, largely we could still control our behavior, even though we have psychological problems. So they put that. I think it's more behavioral problems that, uh, you know, in, in having uh, psychological craziness might even help you converting to Judaism because uh, you probably got to believe something crazy to go through it, to switch your life system and to accept 
you, even though you don't have to take a belief test on the Jewish belief system, you know that that's the Jewish belief system. And so either do you really believe it or can you make yourself believe it? Um, you, you know, so having a being a little crazy might even help as long as it doesn't cause uh, behavioral problems because, uh, you know, the community's eyes are on you and you're going to need extreme levels of self-control to control your behavior, that if you have behavioral outburst, you're just not going to be able to make the cut. You're not going to be able to, you know, be an Orthodox Jew. The, the, there's too, you know, the community uh, level of awareness of what you're doing is too strong to allow a, you know, a severe behavioral uh, you know, disorder. Right. So one, one issue that we have right now is that the conception of mental illness is just so broad that it's hard to get your hands on it. So I want to I want to provide a, a, a metaphor for mental health and mental illness that uh, that I read read about. I think is a very powerful one. So my wrist does everything that I need my wrist to do. I, I can pick up a pen. I can do push ups. I can do pull ups. I can you know carry fifty pound bags of concrete. Like my wrist is perfectly healthy. Right. There's no normal part of life that uh, my, my wrist is, is not up to handling. And so, too, if your emotional life is is congruent with, with reality, if you're able to to deal with, you know, good things happening and bad things happening, but you can keep on trucking, then you're mentally healthy, no matter the various uh, disorders that you may have, no matter the various neuroses you, you may have, if you are adaptive to life. So if you feel sad, it, it doesn't mean you take a week off work. So that's what I mean by mental health. And it does require a, a strong degree of, of mental strength to make it through a conversion process because it's not something you do primarily on your own. It's something you primarily do with other people. You have to essentially win the approval of the community and, and people who get to know you really well. So this book review notes that converting to Judaism requires psychic uh, stability. Now, here's a little bit more from the book review. So, Becoming Jewish in Germany, does that reveal something deeper about the convert? Is that a problem that people are solving by, by say, conversion? And different people in different places, all right, they're going to have different incentives to, to make such a dramatic shift. So much of conversion is just pragmatic. People uh, have, have a Jewish spouse or they have... They have uh, some Jewish ancestry, and it's it's a very pragmatic thing. Now, other people are on an ideological journey. Now, people are on an ideological journey, such as me. All right, I had a desperate need for meaning that Judaism met. And people who have a desperate need for meaning, they're trouble. Because if you have normal relations with other people, you're not going to have a desperate need for meaning because you will get your meaning from your spouse, from your family, from your kids, from your friends, from your community, from your co-workers, from your colleagues. That's the normal way to get meaning in your life through your relationships with other people. But if you don't have satisfying relationships with other people, then you have this huge desperate hunger for meaning because just dealing with reality, your life isn't working. And so you need some kind of transcendent purpose that, that redeems your suffering that comes from not being able to connect normally with other people. 
any thoughts on the the desperate need for meaning and how that's i see it as a tip-off of a lack of satisfying relationships david yeah that's probably accurate I mean, there could be people that are relatively normal and successful that fall into a meaning crisis and could come on to judaism it doesn't you know, have to be a disastrous and even think you know, like my life was relatively on track i didn't have like a disaster like i had an existential crisis i was still accepted into a good university and uh, you know had a network in in good grades and uh, you know i didn't have any serious problems i had an existential meaning crisis and uh, you know, found my answers in judaism i was thinking uh, you know a few things and and uh, you know, judaism you have to be able to constantly show your face and you're, especially if you're a male, and that means coming to Minion. And okay, like I've been doing a lot of things, but most of the time, or really all of the time, uh, I was able to go to Minion, go to synagogue and learn, like you were mentioning, uh, you know, a porn addicts, God forbid, is like, well, can you still go to Minion, put on to fill in, and uh, you know, show up to learning Dafyomi? And, uh, you know, if there's if the behavior, if you're still able to show your face to community, usually you could work with the leadership and the rabbi and they'll try to help you. I remember in your book, God forbid, you, you I think you said it was the Asia the Torah. I don't know if it uh, was, God forbid, that rabbi from that other uh, woman's book who, like, you know, confiscated your tefillin. But like, you know, even in your time with your, your blog or whatever, you were still able to show your face, put on tefillin go to Daf Yomi, uh, seriously study the Daf. And so if other people like, no, Luke Ford, he's doing stuff that is not acceptable, but uh, that would you would be able to work that out with the rabbi and the community leaders. And that's what we said about detractors. They would say, okay, I got my problems, but I'm talking with the rabbi and the leadership and uh, you know the president of the synagogue, and we have an understanding. And there might be other people in the synagogue that aren't happy with that understanding. Like, no, that guy's just bad. I don't know why the rabbi and, you know, the leadership are willing to work together with them. And I hate it. You know, every time he walks into here, you know, I just hate it. And I'm a difficult person uh, towards them. But at the same time, like, usually the community leadership, as long as you're able to show your face, and it's like, well, you know, he davened, he put on tefillin today. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, he was able to show his face. And uh, I think I mentioned this a few times, this uh, other Hasidic rabbi, he said about America in general, but, you know, think in Judaism, like the communal aspect, normal means being able to hide your problems. So as long as you could show up to the communal events and hide your problems, the community leadership will work together with you and try to help you. And there'll be some talebearers who will tell everybody and know about your problems. Uh, but generally, you're still normal if you could uh, hide your problems. And so like the behavioral aspect of not being able to hide your problems that's going to be too much if you can't show up or if showing up you can't show up and hide your problems uh then you know they you okay. might be okay you're repeating I, I got that so but when you had that that desperate need for meaning i'm going to wager you didn't have close friends at that time you you were functional you were educated you were doing many things right but you didn't have close friends who loved you and and who who you loved or I would suspect you would not have had that desperate need for meaning. I mean, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. I was throwing in all that other stuff, and, and you, you know, yeah. so yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Like I was, I, you know, I, I didn't really have any friends, 
and I had a disconnect uh, with my family, but I didn't have any specific issues. Like I was a good student. I was relatively, you know, overachiever. I almost got into, you know, I'd applied to Harvard and MIT. I was doing good at University of Michigan. Um, I had normal, relatively social relations, but no, I, I didn't have any close friends. I felt completely disconnected from everything. It was more an existential uh you lack of meaning. I, I just found no meaning in anything. I was almost suicidal where just like life is meaningless. I should just kill myself, God forbid. And it was Judaism that I found meaning in. And maybe because I was a little bit crazy that I could say, well, maybe this is actually true. So it wasn't just like a stability structure or a, a you know, a, a ability for me to reinvent myself as a new person, um, you know, in my own head, even today, like I still think, uh, that you know this stuff might be might actually be true yeah and another another factor here is that everybody needs things that they're good at and so people who for example don't graduate from college or a prestigious college or don't have a prestigious job or don't have a prestigious hobby or don't have any prestige in their life they can often get a feeling of importance by a very strong commitment to religion. So let's say you convert to Orthodox Judaism or you, you grow in your Jewish observance, you can play an important role in your synagogue. You can be the guy who's there every morning for Daf Yomi. You can be the guy who's there every morning and, and evening for, for Minyan. And so much of, of what uh, drives people into religion is just that, that very human need for an opportunity to shine. For, for a place to be important, for, for a place where you're, you, you play a substantial role, where even some people look up to you. So some people are movie directors, and so they don't need to feel important at synagogue. And you know, other people are prestigious professors, other people run a corporation. Uh, but many people who don't have any, anything where they are standing out in life they can find a way to stand out at synagogue and, and take on a volunteer position or just be, you know, an assistant to the to the rabbi, show up to to davening, to prayers and to Torah classes and become become a an important part of the synagogue and that fills the human need for importance. Any thoughts on that, David? Yeah, definitely. Like uh uh you know, I was before I became you know, Jewish or born again Jewish, I wasn't important to anybody. You know, my parents, uh, you know, were workaholics and they pushed me to achieve, but, uh, you know, largely it, they're just workaholics and, you know, they wanted to see my grades or updates on, uh, my achievements. And, you know, like I knew people, but I, I wasn't that popular. I never got invited to, uh, parties or events. I wasn't important to anybody. And, you know, so even University of Michigan, uh, where, you know, before I went to Israel, like they needed me for a minion, you know, God forbid university of Michigan has like over 4,000 Jewish students over like 2000 Jewish men, uh, but they could hardly get a minion. So, you know, even they had like two rabbis, a Chabad rabbi and a Hillel rabbi. And, uh, but, but they, they needed me for a minion, you know, like literally like this guy even picked me up at my dormitory, uh, you know, like upperclassmen because, uh, you know, like literally I was number 10, um, uh, you know, but to the you know, extent like they needed me. And then when I was in, uh, you know, went to Israel in Brooklyn, I was always needed. Um, you know, like, like uh, you know, just I had regular skills 
um, you know, maybe like Akasha of a little bit uh, educated from a, you know, so as they took higher birth from a upper middle class family, uh, you know, I knew how to do a bunch of things, uh, you know, speak English, uh, know how to write. And, uh, you know, so in Israel, I was uh, recruited, you know, like uh, even big rabbis and yeshivas and various people recruited me and they wanted me to, uh, you know, study in their yeshivas and pray in their, their shuls and be part of their uh, movements. And then I was in New York. I was constantly being recruited and I was being asked things. So like you, you we, we've argued about this many times, like beggar culture, um, but like, you know, being begged for money, um, being asked for, for rides, for small favors. Um, like as a kid, no one ever asked me for anything. Like, you know, even to, you know, like, uh, you know, just asking for money, it was unheard of. Even if I had money to give, uh, like, you know, as a kid, maybe less than five times before I was 18, did someone ask me for money or, uh, you know, just culturally, it wasn't the type thing. People didn't ask each other for things. And, uh, you know, so being part of the Jewish community, it's very easy to, uh, you know, feel important and be needed and to constantly have, uh, you know, people reaching out to you. Yeah, I mean, the the look of pleasure on your rabbi's face when you walk into his class or when you, you know, attend Minion, or not just the rabbi, but, you know, other people, that, that look of, of pleasure and joy that people have when they see you, that's incredibly powerful. That's incredibly intoxicating. Like to, to go to a place where everybody knows your name and where they're always glad you came. I mean, that that's what people want. Uh, do, do you want to talk about that element? Yeah, and you're saying it wasn't like that in the secular world, like, you know, University of Michigan, uh, your prep school, uh, public school. Maybe I had a handful of friends that, you know, were, you know, like, uh, you know, like sit next to me in class or you would occasionally invite me to social events or periods of time where I, I basically hung, you know, just had a one or two friends and would hang out with them you know, day after day after school. Um, but uh, no, I mean, no one was ever glad I showed up. So I get in trouble, like they took uh, attendance, yeah, but uh, no one was ever glad I showed up to anything. And, uh, you know, God forbid, I, I think, you know, the secular world's a, a cold, impersonal place. It's not communal. Um, you know, you could develop friendships and relationships, uh, but, uh, you know, generally, uh, you, you know, like no one's ever glad you come. And uh, they're not so warm or or inviting, and, and it's uh, competitive. But but when you go to synagogue, it's very likely that the rabbi will light up when he sees you. He will be happy to see you, and that's an intoxicating feeling. There will likely be people there who know your name, and they're glad to see you. I mean, that feels really good, right? Definitely. I mean, I would think, you know, even though, okay, my local Young Israel or Orthodox synagogues, you know, like, I try to be on good behavior and not to cause any problems and uh, various things. You may, you may be like, there's a certain tire. People don't really like me. And there's always the element of difficult social interactions, but like, yeah, almost definitely. If I, if I went to any of these local synagogues, even in Brooklyn, like the rabbi himself would probably come over and say, Oh, how's it going? How, how you been? Um, you know, if, you know, if there's anything you need, uh, let me know, uh, you know, at least to a, a minimal extent, and most of the people, uh, you, you know, like I was given the example of, uh, you know, like needing $20. Uh, you know, God forbid, to, you know, keep, keep yourself cool. Uh, but like, you know, like I, I, there's probably, you know, like it'd be, you know, like 
like you said, like, like you know, like, oh, like, how come you haven't been coming to synagogue? And uh, like, we're glad you're here. Uh, and, uh, you know, there would be Kiddush and Kiddush Club. Someone might invite me to their house for a Sabbath meal. The rabbi, you know, you know, probably you want to make sure everything's all right and uh, and try to uh, get me more involved. And, uh, you know, that was definitely, you know, because I was somewhat like an elite, I guess, like, uh, you know, so like Orthodox community was like, you know, like, like social economically a step down you know, saying like, okay, I live in a wealthier suburb than the Orthodox community. I was accepted into the best schools, uh, even in New York, um, that, uh, you know, there's a certain, uh, you know, element uh, that, uh, but, uh, you know, just a welcoming, friendly community. And you know, it was like, no, we need you. Like, like, yeah. uh, the, the, the I, I went back to Australia, you know, I got invited to rabbi's homes for, for meals. I got invited to, you know, Jewish events. Uh, people picked me up to take me bowling. I mean, it, it's a, a very warm community. Like Jews tend to be very warm and at the outside world, it's frequently very cold. I mean, making your way in the world today, it takes everything you've got. I mean, taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. I mean, wouldn't you like to get away? Uh, think about all those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail, and your little angel hung the cat up by its tail, and your third fiancé didn't show. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. I mean, you roll out of bed, Mr. Coffee's dead, the morning's looking bright, and your shrink ran off to Europe and didn't even write, and your husband wants to be a girl. Well, be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know that people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. So back yeah, Portnoy is Jewish. The, the author of that song is Jewish, Portnoy. I forget his first name. You know, it was a good song. I looked into it and, uh, you know, think that it's you know, certainly a Jewish authored. Uh, but, uh, you know, definitely there could be, okay, like, you know, like, okay, like, they're not necessarily going to say, well, you know, we'll put you into leadership. We're going to set you up with our most beautiful girl. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly you're needed and there's going to be a task for you and you're going to be included at least the minimal standard. Like, uh, you know, even if it's a uh, overflow synagogue, you know, like I, they, 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 you stand or you're going to get you a seat. Uh, there's going to be enough food for you at the kiddish. If they know you're coming, you know, like the, you know there's, there's, you're going to be fed uh, a certain minimum standard safety net is there for you. And even in terms of shidduch, like they might not have the girl you want to set you up with, uh, but they'll probably make an effort to set you up uh, and, you know, employment. They might have not have the job that you want, uh, but uh, someone will probably have employment for you. And, uh, you know, God forbid, the secular world's a cold, harsh place. There's con men in the Jewish community, but the, you know, the Jewish community has a safety factor too, like like you were mentioning, like Manhattan, and uh, you you like like uh, like rape and uh, you know thievery and con men, uh, you know, like bad things happen to people. Uh, you know, you could uh, you go out into the world and ask for help or go to a bar, uh, you know, regular places, even you know, university, people take advantage of you. Uh, you know, there's levels of people taking advantage of you in the Jewish community, but it's like no, I mean, generally they're going to protect you from that. And, uh, yeah, and so that structure there, I'd never been part of it. 
and it felt good. And also, like, you know, as a venue to give back, it feels good to be a good person and help other people, especially if you're part of the group strategy. So, like, and I'm a Jew now, and I'm helping out the Jewish community, and that's helping out myself because I know that this community that I might be doing well now and I'm giving to the community, but if I was in a bad situation, uh, the community would take care of me, you know, something like Oh Hell or the, you know, the soup kitchen or all these various things that you're saying, like, God forbid, I would never want to be on the dole of the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, but, you know, think like, well, it's going to be there for me. I'm glad and I'm happy to give to something uh, that I'm part of. And you could try to find that in the secular world, you know, like what Hinduism or another religion, a volunteer group, uh, camaraderie, uh, you, you know, like sometimes a group of friends, like at a bar, uh, you know, you could be there for somebody, um, you know, like even like talking like strategies to uh, being promiscuous and helping a person out with their strategy. And, you know, so there is camaraderie and a thing of people being there for you, uh, but not the same way as uh, you know, like a religious group like that, especially Orthodox Judaism, which is you know, probably one of the strongest identities in the world. Right. So w when I've moved to a new Jewish community, usually uh, there's someone who takes me aside and says, what do you need? Do you need a job? Do you need an apartment? Do you need a car? Uh, do you need a, a doctor? Like, what do you need? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll help you out. And that's very common. I mean, or if you're you're moving from your community, you can go to Minion and say, "Hey, I've got a car that that I, I need to get rid of." So, people really pitch in to help out. Back to this article in JTA. The headline is: Are "Too many Germans converting to Judaism." The debate is roiling in Germany's Jewish community. And the Cantor, who wrote the controversial article, says, "I know that no one should talk about the Gior, meaning the convert." So. She's citing Jewish laws frowning on dif differentiating between converts and people who are born Jewish. But again, Jewish law is incredibly pragmatic, right? If it's important to talk about differences between people who convert and people who are born Jewish, the, the Jewish community is not going to shut that down. Uh, so many of these these teachings, it's very hard to legislate ethics, all right? So you've got a lot of ethical teachings in Judaism, such as, you know, don't remind a convert that he is a convert. But these are sermons. These are homiletics. They're not really halakha in the normal sense, like halakha meaning Jewish law, like keep the Sabbath, keep, keep kosher. So Jewish teachings about ethics are overwhelmingly of the homiletical variety, meaning a story. And so if you get a story saying, don't remind the convert that he's a convert, that's not the same as a halakha that, that you can't eat a pig. Obviously, there's a time and a place where discussing conversion and converts and people born Jewish are, are completely appropriate. So, uh, Duvid, you want to say anything? Yeah, I mean, specifically the case in Germany where me and you, you may have been seeking meaning and running away from problems in our, uh, our, uh, you're born biological identity, but the German case is different, you know, in, in the sense that they're running away from Germanness and specifically from being the perpetrators of the Holocaust to the victims of the Holocaust. So the nature of this article is taking a different turn 
I think it's also mentioning that, that like there's it appeared that there'd really been a, a huge amount of uh, conversion there. And, uh, you know, so I don't know the exact numbers. I, I looked up the book. I, I couldn't find it. I actually found it uh, a free copy online in German, but not in English. So I don't know the numbers, but it appeared you know, that they're saying it was pretty substantial in some of these congregations. Um, you know, even like the downtown synagogue, uh, now at this point that they've went liberal, uh, there's a huge element of people that aren't halakhically Jewish. There's a huge amount of people that have done liberal conversions. And if you went to the synagogue on a given period, now that you know they've dumped a minion or the typical things that Orthodox Jews do, probably less than half of the people there are halakhically Jewish. And, uh, you know, of those that aren't, you know, maybe half of those have done some sort of uh, conversion process. And, uh, you know, so there's going to be like a level, like, like I'm, I'm actually a biological Jew. And, uh, you know, like I should have more weight or bearing in uh, in this community. And then if you're looking at the direction, like, well, what practical implication does that have? And there might have been like, well, I, I wanted kind of a normal surrounding. I didn't want to be caught up with a whole bunch of Jews. That's why we had we invited all these going there. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, uh, there's going to be group strategy and it's going to become questionable for the community, especially in Germany, where you have, uh, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, German and a perpetrator of the Holocaust? Right. Uh, let, yeah, let me let me jump in. So I think something that many people don't understand that when you're converting to Judaism, you're primarily converting to a tribe, not a religion. So if Judaism was primarily a religion, then the, the more converts, the better. Right. But Judaism is not primarily a religion. Judaism is primarily a people. It is primarily a tribe. When you have a tribe, uh, bringing in additions to the tribe is not necessarily in the tribe's best interest. So tribes throughout history have brought in outsiders and essentially adopted them into the tribe and mentored them into the tribe. And they, these outsiders have become insiders and successfully assimilated into the tribe. But Judaism is not Christianity without Jesus, right? Christianity is a religion where the more converts, the better. But Judaism definitely does not follow that strategy. It's primarily about what is best for the people, meaning Jews, the people of Israel. It's not primarily about, you know, saving souls and, uh, and you know, just getting more and more numbers in into your congregation. So going back to this uh, German cantor, she writes, the very large number of new Jews has led to a considerable change in Jewish life in Germany in some services and during some speeches. I feel more reminded of an interreligious event than of the visit to the synagogue I've been familiar with since childhood. Well, she's talking here about reformed synagogues. Obviously, you're not going to find many interreligious events at Orthodox synagogues. I mean, that's... That's very rare, and that's only going to happen in modern Orthodox synagogues. So this is an article overwhelmingly about uh, non-Orthodox conversion to Judaism. Anything you want to add, David? Yeah, but it, I mean, if it we're mentioning like, okay, like I was useful to the community because I had more social economic status than the average Orthodox Jew. And you know, so probably... Germans 
have more social economic status than the average Orthodox Jew. So if it's here in America, in Metro Detroit, um, your average Orthodox Jew, even though they don't go to university, uh, may not even have you know, more, you know, like an official high school diploma, probably have more social economic status than African Americans, but they have less social economic status than, uh, um, you know, than suburban, uh, suburban whites or educated whites. So probably the case with the Germans has some element like that, and hence why they're able to uh, raise the leadership. And, uh, you know, then the question about interfaith or representation. So, like, a lot of times, like, Orthodox Jews don't do interfaith. They don't care about that. Uh, they don't really have this representation. You know, they might have uh, community liaisons that deal with certain aspects, uh, but it's more a secular thing. So it's a little bit of a joke that it's the secular community that's so concerned about this that, you know, they're, they're fake converts or their, you know, their numbers in their social clubs, and then they're looking that their social clubs, uh, you know, like the reform here in America, where, you know, at this point, less than like half of the reform are halakhically Jewish anyways. They allowed patrilineal uh, descent and minimized the standards of conversion. And that's why you know, mentioned also that, uh, you know, of the people that do Orthodox conversion, that's probably less than 10% of conversions, because Orthodox conversion is extremely difficult. It's uh, you know, grueling. You basically have to give everything over to it and make a lifelong commitment, as opposed to uh, your know, lesser levels of conversion. You could kind of just take like a six-week course and have a minimal allegiance to a local synagogue of people that don't do anything really that Jewish, and it's kind of just like joining um, a country club. And so, you know, probably this case in Germany is is like that, but at the same time because Jews are a minority and most Orthodox Jews are uh, insular that you could represent the Jewish community. So you could take a six week course and uh, you'll join like a, you know, reform social Jewish, uh, you know, JCC social club and be Jewish and start representing Judaism and interfaith or to non-Jews or you're talking about the Holocaust and various things. So I think in this case, that's probably more the case. And especially in Germany, you know, with uh, the nature of the Holocaust, where you have all these kind of like social club Jews, uh, Germans, that uh, are questionably Jewish, and now they're representing the Jewish community to uh, non-Jews. And like even in LA, where there's you know, like half a million Jews, in a sizable Jewish community, uh, there's still probably, you know, one out of three, one out of four people in LA probably don't really know any Jews that well. So you could convert to Judaism, even though there's half a million, you know, Jews within near vicinity of you, and all of a sudden you're representing yourself to the uh, two non-Jews as, you know, like a leader in the Jewish community. Okay, I want to deal with a comment in the chat by Glib Medley. He says, some people find meaning in tearing up a roll of toilet paper before the sun goes down on Fridays. No, you misunderstand what's really going on. The reason that some people find meaning in observing the laws of the Sabbath, including the law of not tearing things so that they therefore prepare for the Sabbath by tearing up 
uh, sheets of, of toilet paper so that they don't have to get perforated on the Sabbath. The meaning comes from the signal that this gives to yourself and to others that you're a part of a concrete community of flesh and blood. If nobody knew that you were tearing up toilet paper before Shabbat, if you weren't part of a community of people who do this, then you wouldn't find meaning in it. Even God, all right? God only has meaning to the extent that you make that concrete through participation with other people in reaching out to God or celebrating God or following God's will. So I primarily get meaning from reading books because I know I'll have the opportunity to share it with you and to share it with my friends. If I didn't get to talk about the books I read with other people, reading those books would have about, I don't know, 40%, 30% of the meaning. So meaning comes from other people. So if you get meaning from doing a ritual, it's not the ritual that's giving you the meaning. It is the connection with other people that gives you the meaning. So People can use religion to connect with other people. People can use a, a dog park to commit with, connect with other people. People can use live streaming. And uh, Glib Medley says, if you can't get a Jewish wife, it's all rather absurd. Well, if you connect with other people, it's not rather absurd. Right? I have good friends in the Orthodox Jewish community with whom I spend a, a great deal of my spare time, with whom I have the most intense important conversations of, of my week uh, with friends from various Orthodox synagogues. That's where my life revolves, right? My, my social circle within the Orthodox Jewish community, that is the, the burning core of my life. And that's there and that works and that keeps me warm, even though I, I don't have a wife. So uh, human connection is absurd and pointless. If you don't have a wife, that's nonsense, right? We we need friends. We need other people. We need opportunities to be of service to other people. We need other people to get feedback. We, we need other people to share a common cause with. And, oh, my God, I failed the first commandment. Oh, my God. All right. So there's, there's a type of personality that Glib Medley is embodying right now where they just feel driven to knock down something that gives other people pleasure and meaning, right? And so if uh, going to a dog park gives you pleasure and meaning, you know, don't allow people to knock that down. There is nobody, all right? There's nobody from whom you can't take a certain angle and find failures in their life, all right? Everybody has failures. Everybody has vulnerabilities. Everybody can point a finger and say, look, you failed here at this fundamental task of being human. Everybody fails at, you know, some aspect of being human. Everybody looks up at the ceiling of their life and, and sees a missing tile. Now, certain people will fixate on that missing tile, not just their own missing tile, but they will feel, uh, you know, obliged to point it out to you as like, oh, how dare you be happy? How dare you find meaning and sustenance in this particular community or activity? Don't you realize that you failed on this fundamental task of being human, right? Everybody fails at the fundamental task of being human in this way or that way. Everybody has gaping wounds inside them. The rabbi with 12 children has gaping wounds inside of himself. Uh, the rabbi with 12 kids and, and a beautiful wife and a flourishing career and friends 
and professional prestige. He has deep wounds because there are fundamental parts of being human that even he fails at. We never get to graduate from being human. We never become invulnerable to to life. We never, you know, hit you know every single uh, option and and just you know get it all lined up. So you can always figure out a reason why. Oh, you shouldn't be taking pleasure in your job because someone else is doing the same job that you're doing, and they make forty percent more money than you. How dare you feel pleasure at your job? How dare you have a sense of pride? How dare you get uh, get get purpose and meaning and human connection and friendship and feel happy, you know, belonging to a particular professional community when you're not even number one? You're not even in the top twenty percent. You're just a schlepper. How dare you be happy? That really bugs me that you're happy, because I can see from the outside. That there are 15 reasons why you should not be happy. I can list off right now seven things that you should feel thoroughly ashamed of. How dare you stand up and say you find purpose and meaning and happiness in this activity or with this connection or with this group or following this procedure or obeying these protocols? How dare you be happy? Can't you see that there are seven things wrong with you that I can list right now that uh, every group that you belong to, guess what? There are economists who are not particularly good at math. There are, uh, ath- there are porn stars who can't give a good hand job. There are you know, professional athletes who you know, struggle with this or that aspect of their profession. So nobody ever graduates from vulnerability. David, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that some of the stuff has been well studied and you know, like I largely agree and, you know, as a convert or outsider, uh, Baltruva, you could become a full member of the Orthodox community, prominent, um, purposeful. Uh, but in terms of the internal community leadership, it would be pretty rare for there to be, you know, a convert or even a Baltruva. And because it is tribal, there's the element of large families. So, you know, there. You know, Yichus lineage is extremely important. Most rabbis, even the modern Orthodox rabbis, come from rabbinic families, have an impressive lineage of rabbis. Uh, a lot of times, even modern Orthodox uh, leaders, like president of congregations, uh, organizations, come from extremely large extended families and have connection into the Orthodox community. So like maybe like a Baltruva could become like a head of the AG's AJC. Uh but you know like you like the local federation or various Jewish power, most of those people come from large extended family networks. And because it's tribal, they're almost seen as a representative of their family. And also the nature of a Jewish communal structure is that most events like people are constantly going to weddings and bar mitzvahs and family events and family shows up. So, you know, if you're in LA in the Orthodox community and you have 400, uh, you know, second, third cousins, and when you make a wedding, you know, you instantly have like 200 people, or if you make a, you know, like, a, you know, so Luke, you might, uh, you know, like if you got married, I'm sure it'd be a great blessing and lots of people would come to synagogue, but you're not going to have a hundred people that are your cousins. They're going to come in like automatically, going to come because they're your relatives and that's part of being tribal 
and living in Brooklyn or having been in the black hat uh, Orthodox system, there's the marriage dynamics. So a large aspect of Judaism focuses on continuity, education, uh, shadukim, and generally converts, marry other converts, and even second generation, the kids of converts marry the kids of other converts or balichuva or various things. And I remember in Israel, you know, like at Orsamaic, there was Rabbi Asher Wade, who became Hasidic and was a former German uh, uh, Christian uh, minister. And he became a semi-prominent rabbi, but it's always like the former Christian minister, the convert and his kids may have intermarried within the community, but it, it take probably two or three generations till it would be normalized that uh, you would have a prominent, like you're saying that there would be a Jewish Ford, that if you had kids, likely your kids would marry the kids of like a Baltruva or modern Orthodox or other convert. And maybe your grandkids could uh, rise up to being like a position of power or being a rabbi. And it'd probably even be great grandkids. You'd be probably looking at the third generation. So, uh, you know, the aspect of lineage and marriage and internal representation of uh, leaders being representative of larger family structures is is uh, inescapable. So, like, you know, Glib's point in that, uh, like, there is that aspect of the community, but it doesn't mean that you're not a full part of the community. It just means that leadership is tribal, and in order to be a leader in the Jewish community, generally you have to be a prominent leading member of a large extended family uh, network. And as a convert, uh, you know, that will take multiple generations. Right. Uh, thanks, David. I'm going to move on for tonight. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, great. Interesting talk and uh, blessings. Yeah, blessings to you. So uh, this this is something that, that uh, I work with. And if, if you're normal, you work with this too. You get to choose where you put your attention. So sometimes I stand up here and I run out of passion. I, I run out of energy. I think, God, this is a pointless stream. I am not contributing anything. All I'm doing is being a content taker rather than a content maker. And I'm not energized every time I, I get off a live stream. I don't uh, finish a live stream every time. Go, oh, yeah, what a, what a powerful show. Boy, 40, you really you know, just knocked it out of the park on, on that show. So when I, when I say run out of energy, run out of drive, or just become frustrated with a stream and uh, I, I shut it down. Like, where do I go from there? And one, one place I go is, ah, am I doing too much live streaming? So you'll notice reasonably often I'll take three days a week, 10 days, just completely off from live streaming. So I think, you know, what the hell am I doing? Are there better ways that I could spend my time? Or I think about, are there better ways that I, I could do the show? And you know, as I participate in life, you know, I mess things up. I say the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. I try to join a conversation where I'm I'm not wanted. And, or I think, oh my God, you know, I'm a bachelor. I've never been after to sustain a relationship longer than a year. So I have all these opportunities to feel bad. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think back on the, the, the course of, of my life and... You know, there are so many 
ugly things that I've done. There are so many gratuitously cruel things that I've done. There are so many shameful and embarrassing things that I've done. Uh, just the way I've conducted myself for, for years on end, there's just, ugh, ugh. But I don't want to live there. I adopted certain attitudes that seem to be working for me. So, for example, I don't tend to regret the past. So you you be the judge. You've watched this show for two, three, five, six years. I don't spend time regretting the past. That's relatively a minor role in my life. I Because I have adopted the attitude that I heard or read somewhere or I just developed it, that given who I was at a particular point of time, I could not have operated differently, that I was doing the best I could at that time to meet my needs. And those were all the tools that I had. And therefore, I, I made those embarrassing choices. And that that's an attitude that, that really helps me. Or sometimes there, there are certain women that I am highly attracted to. And I, I may talk to one and it becomes very evident very quickly that she has no interest in me. So as soon as I, I detect that, I, I try to you know get the hell out of that, that conversation because it's dispiriting. And so I can think about that. I can think about uh, one woman in particular who's very smart, very funny, very pretty, just you know, just my type. And if I think about her for very long, I, I get I get sad. So I choose not to think about her very long. Like intermittently, you know, thoughts of her may, may come to mind, and and then I, I choose to put my attention elsewhere. So I don't focus on oh, I'm not with this woman that I want right now. And I don't focus on what I don't have in my life. And I don't focus on, oh, I'm not eating out at the fa most fancy restaurants. I don't focus on, oh, I wasn't invited to that cool party. I focus on, my God, I love all the time that I have to read books. So yesterday, Labor Day, what did I do? It was stinking hot outside. And I read a book by Ronnie Goldman, his uh, Critical Theory of Academia. So it took me about five hours, and I powered through about 220 densely packed pages of his Critical Theory of of Academia. And that was how I spent my day, and I enjoyed it. Like, I took notes. I you know, added some key excerpts to my blog. I highlighted some passages that I may want to revisit, revisit on a future stream. And the primary meaning that I get from reading a book is not reading the book in and of itself, just helping you know develop my understanding of life. The primary meaning I get out of reading a book is that I get to share it with you and with you over there and you know with my friend at synagogue and my friend at the coffee house and my friend at the dog park and you know my friend at the dental office and uh my my friend in this 12 step program and my friends in that 12 step program so synagogue and 12 step programs and people from the dog park and people from the the bar down the road where, where I spend time, I take them with me, right? I'm thinking about them often when I'm getting up at four in the morning. It's not infrequently that I wake up at four in the morning and I'm excited as long as I've, I've had sufficient sleep. You know, I'm excited to get up at 4 a.m. because it gives me two more hours of life, 
right, two more hours to read books, two more hours to exercise, two more hours to write in my journal, two more hours to do a live stream or to prepare a live stream. And so I keep my, my thinking, generally speaking, on what it is that I'm doing that I enjoy and that I want to do. So I enjoy reading Thomas Hobbes and uh, understanding more about his life and understanding more about his his classic work, Leviathan. Uh, when I, I deal with difficult people, I enjoy going through videos on, on YouTube on how to deal with difficult people, how to classify different difficult people, how to develop effective strategies for interacting with, with difficult people. I love becoming more competent at life by reading a book, reading an article, watching a video, listening to a podcast, and and I come into this with a problem, then I get a solution. It's like, yes, you know, I feel good. I feel good when I write a blog post that I like to read. So occasionally I'll be watching a movie or a TV show or reading a book and it'll inspire, oh, I, I want to blog about this. And so I, I start blogging and then I go read it in, in my browser and it's like, oh, this is good. Right? I, I get pleasure from writing. I get pleasure from doing many live streams. Some live streams, I think, oh, what the hell am I doing here, 40? This is this is a waste. 40, you, you just turned into a content taker rather than a content maker. You know, what the hell, bro? Or, you know, oh, you let this person talk too much, or you didn't allow this person to talk enough, or you you didn't, you know, take that person's question with the seriousness that it deserved. And on the other hand, you took that person's comment with, with too much seriousness. So keeping tuned in to certain channels, right? Keeping tuned in to a focus of, you know, what I am grateful for, what I am good at, what... You know, it makes me feel alive and thriving and, and sitting back or standing up. I do a lot of my reading standing up or lying back and, and reading a book. That that makes me happy. Now, I could spend that time introspecting about what I'm missing in life. But you know, maybe you think, oh, I'm just lying to you. I'm just putting on this performance. And as soon as the, the show goes off, I, I crawl into a ball and, and cry myself to sleep. The 40 you get on the live stream is a little amped up, you know, version of 40 through the rest of rest of my life. I'm a pretty happy guy about 90% of the time. I'm, uh, you know, average about probably 9% of the time. And 1% of the time I'm actively unhappy when, particularly when I experience some, you know, dire form of loss. Uh, when, when that, you know, just occasionally, you know, people, events, circumstances, losses, you know, they just take control of my prefrontal cortex. I can't Alexander technique my way out of it. I can't meditate my way out of it. I can't journal my way out of it. I can't, you know, read a book out of it. I, you know, sometimes, you know, events, losses, people, you know, will preoccupy my prefrontal cortex. But most of the time, life as I experience, I get to choose what channel I tune into. And so I, choose to tune into the channel of love. There are a lot of people in my life who I love. I get to tune into the channel of you know intellectual excitement, and uh, that's a happy place to be. I get to tune into the channel of emotional sobriety, and uh, that may mean prayer. It may mean meditation. It may mean attending a 12-step meeting. It may mean sponsor, sponsoring people. It may mean reaching out to people. It may mean picking up the big book like I did yesterday. I took picked up the big book 
And whenever there was a sentence or a phrase that, that spoke to me, I, I set it aside and just started journaling about why that phrase had so much meaning for me. So I choose to keep my, my conscious mind focused on those activities in life that, that resonate with me, that, that make me happy, that make me feel good, that make me feel excited, that uh, provide you know warmth for my soul, for, for my neshama, and that I can then share it with other people. And when I think about the stupid things I've done and the ugly things I've done and the dumb things I've done, I take an attitude to that. I take the attitude of one, could not have acted differently given who I was at the time. And two, I'm going to use that to be of service, right? Because there are other people who've done similarly stupid things as me, right? And some of them, a few, I'm going to be out help. Right. I, I'm not so naive that here I am speaking to this, you know, intoxicating crowd of, of 17 live people. You know, I'm not so stupid of thinking, oh, you know, I'm changing 17 lives right now. But I think you know, the odds are that uh, one, two, three people are going to get some some benefit from this live stream that uh, I'll run into somebody who's who's having a problem that, that I've struggled with and I can use my experience, I can use my humiliation, I can use my failure, and I can just share my experience, strength, and hope. You know, I don't have to preach at anyone. I don't have to say, oh, here's the holy book, and if you just read chapter three of this holy book, you know, that provides all the answers that you need. Oh, here's the guru. If you just check out this guru, if you just you know, do this 17-point you know, procedure, you'll solve your problem. No, I can just share, okay, I had a problem similar to that. My God, it completely knocked me on my ass. I can't believe what a total tool I was and what a fool I was. And what I learned from the experience was X, Y, Z. And uh, now when I encounter similar situations, I'm able to navigate them. And if it's an appropriate interaction where the person's, you know, paying attention to me, they're not just like tuning out and, and, uh, you know, their body language is turned away from me. And it's like, oh, hell, you know, I'm getting lectured at right now. And as soon as I pick that up, I stop, all right? If I'm not getting getting that that immediate feedback that, that someone's tuning in, I stop. But uh, there, are, there are occasions when I say something that's useful. Some people have gotten benefit from the Fisher-Wallace device. Some people have gotten benefit from, uh, what, uh, beef organ capsules. Uh, some people have gotten benefit from, you know, a five-minute meditation practice. Uh, some people have gotten benefit from a 12-step program that I, I may have mentioned. Some people have gotten benefit from reading a book that I, I've, I've mentioned. Some people have gotten benefit from uh, taking up the Alexander Technique. Some people find, you know, a particular idea such as no need to regret the past because given who I was at the time, I could not have acted differently. I didn't have enough tools to, to deal appropriately with the situation. Some people find that a useful insight. So it's not, it's not a matter of being, you know, the, the ascendant guru. It's a matter of living a life that, that is consonant with the people who I like, you know, getting along with other people, you know, realizing when there's a time to speak up and when there's a time to be silent, you know, having moderate opportunities to help other people, having opportunities to do the things that I find interesting and stimulating and even exciting that aren't bad for me, right? A lot of forms of excitement are really bad for me. So if I took up sports betting, that would be really bad for me. 
if I uh, tried to live the, the pickup artist lifestyle, that would be really bad for me. If I tried to sleep with every woman uh, I could who was you know, above a five, that would be really bad for me. But there are things that I can do. Like uh, Elliot Blatt talked about the, the true crime documentary. Watching a true crime documentary late at night when you can't sleep, that's 1,000 times better than watching pornography. Right? You still get the excitement, right? You get the distraction, right? Distraction sometimes gets a, a bad name. Discra- distraction is frequently adaptive, right? Sometimes distraction is maladaptive, right? If you should be doing your job and instead you are being distracted by playing some stupid you know, game on your phone, that's maladaptive distraction. But my day typically starts about 5 a.m., Right. My day typically is composed of about an hour of spiritual practice, about uh, an hour of uh, sponsoring, about uh, an hour of exercise, of about uh, two hours or so of reading books, uh, about eight hours of work. And then after I've done all those good things, come 7 p.m., 8 p.m., I'll jump on my exercise bike or I'll go out to to an event, but it's now 40 time, right? I've done good things. I've been of service for other people. I've done the exercises I need to do to stay in shape. I've done the exercises I need to do to stay spiritually aligned, right? I have met my obligations to other people. I have contributed. I have given of myself. I have stepped up to the plate and now it's 40 time. Bye-bye.